Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In the world today, it's not just technology that changes quickly. Just 25 years ago, some thought we had reached the end of history, that the end of the Cold War would bring about protracted peace, that the end of the last great superpower struggle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union would mark a new era. And in many ways it did, but not necessarily the one that was anticipated. Just as technology led to deconstruction in almost every area of society, so too in foreign policy. The gravitational pull of great powers that held the world together, just as the forces that held major industries and businesses together, fragmented independence, democratization, real-time instant communication and commerce, let loose global and destabilizing forces that we are trying hard to sort through today. And while in business it might mean the end of a company or the end of an industry, in foreign affairs the disarray just might mean the end of the world. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Dr. Richard Haas. He is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as the senior Middle East advisor to President George H.W. Bush and was director of the policy planning staff under former Secretary of State Colin Powell. He's the author or editor of 12 books on foreign policy and international relations. His latest, just out in paperback, is A World in Disarray, Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Richard Haas, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. One of the things that you talk about is that the long arc of history tells us that without great power conflicts, we should be moving towards peace, that things should be better. And in fact, that's not what's happened in the world at all. Talk a little about that first. That's a real head-scratcher, and it's kind of what got me going into writing this book, because that was the question I posed to myself after the Cold War ended and over the last couple of years. Uh, compared, say, to the 20th century, even U.S.-Russian relations at their worst, the U.S.-China relations at their most competitive, was nothing like what we saw during the Cold War, much less during uh, you know, World War II or World War I. So I couldn't figure out why was it then that things weren't better than they were, and that's what got me going on exploring it. And then I ended up looking at the impact of globalization and the fact that you had all these challenges that the world hadn't been able to uh, figure out how to how to deal with, that you had the rise of all sorts of you know, weak states, uh, the the rise of medium powers, you had the rise of groups like uh, Al Qaeda or or ISIS, uh, you know, and what what I basically said is even though you don't have great power competition on a on the 20th century scale. What we have is a world that is still the centrifugal forces are, are much greater than anything pulling it together. And in many ways, that kind of decentralization, that destabilization, reflects not only what's happening in world affairs and global affairs, as you point out, but it is filtered down into almost every other aspect of our society. Uh, absolutely, and I think that's a, uh, it's one of the reasons that we're having uh, more difficulty, say, with American democracy. You know, in the old days, you had uh, things like political parties being really dominant. Well, now any candidate can raise money, any candidate can get on this or that media or, or tweet something. Well, when you think about the economy, most of the things that used to centralize it are now it's working just the other way. So if you want to go book a flight, you don't go to a travel agent. You just go online and, and, and do it yourself. So this is a world, and to use the awful word, of disintermediation, but we're getting rid of a lot of the uh, brokers, and increasingly we're, we're doing things um, by ourselves. So everybody now has access to the Internet. Everybody has access to unbelievable amounts of computing power. In the future, we all may have access to Bitcoin, and we won't have to worry as much about what central banks do. So this is a much more decentralized world, many more players than ever before with real capacity. 
And it, my point is simply that this is a situation where it's far, far harder to organize a collective response. And that one of the impacts that it has had, as you point out in the book, is that it has changed the whole idea of what sovereignty used to mean and how sovereignty was part of kind of the world order and what kept things together. Exactly right. Sovereignty was the one big idea of the last few hundred years. People people who haven't studied history may not understand that, say, before a few hundred years ago, you had hundreds if not thousands of political units in the world, this or that. You know, principality or something like that. Like before the middle of the 19th century, you know, Italy was, you know, I don't know how many parts it probably had, over a hundred parts, and they all came together into a modern state. And what we didn't have was a world where people respected borders. So sovereignty comes along. Suddenly we have far fewer political units in the world. Uh, borders are sacrosanct. And that was the big idea, and it actually introduced a degree of stability. And my point is simply now we've got all these forces in the world thanks to globalization, that don't respect borders. So as we learned on 9-11, terrorists operating out of Afghanistan could get on an airplane and suddenly 3,000 people here were dead. Or climate change doesn't respect borders. Or North Korea can put nuclear weapons on missiles that can fly uh, towards any American uh, city. And my point is simply that we now need to think about a foreign policy that takes into account that it's simply not enough to say uh, what goes on inside your borders is your business. Because increasingly, what goes on inside someone else's borders is our business, like it or not. And the question is, how do we come up with a way of dealing with that, which doesn't mean that we have constant wars or invading other countries? And I think that's the big, that'll be the big 21st century challenge. But isn't the, the internal problem there, that this lack of sovereignty, this sense of of global citizenship and global involvement is what is driving so many of these nationalistic forces around the world and further adding to the decay and disarray. I think there's something about that. I think something to that, that in a world of globalism, uh, a lot of individuals feel uh, they're being challenged, whether it's immigration or whether it's economic changes halfway around the world that suddenly there's an import and their job disappears or there's a technological innovation and their job uh, disappears or through you know, climate change, you know, the house they just bought on the coast suddenly is flooded. So I think what we're beginning to see is that a lot of people feel threatened for good reason in some cases, in other cases maybe not, but all the same, they feel threatened by forces that are beyond their control. And what they're doing, quite naturally, I think, is they're rallying around populists or nationalists. I think the fact that Donald Trump got elected is in no small part because of that sort of mentality. It's the reason that Brexit passed in uh, Britain. It's the reason that we're seeing various uh, right-wing populist groups grow up all, all over Europe. And Europe is an interesting example, as you talk about, because in many ways it should have been ideally suited to this new framework, particularly the kind of European project, and yet even that destabilization has become profound. Well, right. I think what happened was the, the European project, quote-unquote, uh, lost touch with its own citizens through, throughout Europe, got very, very bureaucratic. And then, you know, most recently, you had this massive wave of immigration coming into Germany and elsewhere in, in Europe, and the European Union looked unable to to cope with it. It was also in many ways unable to cope with terrorism. So people end up you know, rejecting institutions that don't seem to deliver. So to me, it's, it's not that surprising. And it's really a warning that what we'd assume would always be here is not necessarily the case. And that's, you know, that's what Brexit is. Brexit is a radical reaction 
to a situation where many Brits concluded that the EU relationship was no longer serving their interests. I think they're dead wrong, but, but there you have it. One of the things you point out is that these forces, whether they were historical forces in, in other times and other situations, or the forces that we're talking about now, that they're not inevitable, that actions, that leaders, that people have consequences. Talk a little about that. It comes from my own experience, Jeff. I mean, I've worked for four presidents. I've worked for Jimmy Carter at the Pentagon. I worked for Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush at State, and I worked for Bush 41, the father at the White House. So I've been around a, a lot of senior people. I've been involved in a lot of crises. And my, my one conclusion is almost nothing is baked into the cake. What people, you know, the people who are there, the decisions they make, nothing is inevitable. And these decisions have real consequences. It could be good or bad. I thought it was, you know, the way Bush the father handled the end of the Cold War, the way he handled Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. I thought that was admirable. I disagreed with the Iraq War in 2003. I disagreed with Obama not acting on his uh, red line in, in Syria. My, my point is simply that uh, very little about history is preordained. And the fact that Donald Trump would pull out of TPP or pull us out of the Paris Agreement or decertify you know, uh, the, Iran the Iranians and the nuclear accord, none of that was inevitable. Uh, you may think those were great decisions. You may be critical of them like I am. But my point is simply a different president in his job would have reacted quite possibly very differently. And this all has consequences. And this, wall, this is the stuff that, that writes history. Isn't one of the consequences in this larger context that we talked about at the outset, isn't one of the consequences the fact that all of this is moving today at a speed that arguably outstrips our ability to adjust and adapt to it? I think that's certainly true. It certainly puts a hell of a lot more pressure on policymakers. You know, when I first started out in government, I feel like a dinosaur. But you used to have something called a news cycle. And you used to have like morning newspapers and the evening news and Ted Koppel would be on Nightline uh, and so forth. And then now we have a 24-7 news cycle and it never, it never stops. And there's and everything is visible everywhere or almost that way uh, instantaneously. So there's far less time for reflection, to consider things. I think it's, I think it's made it tougher. It's made it much tougher uh, for governments to, to, to wrap their arms around challenges and to figure out in a considered, careful way how they want to respond. There's also the sense that with everybody in charge, with everybody having more power and more say, that nobody is in charge. Uh, I'm afraid you're right, and I think again, this is this is a world now. You know, we have what 192 or so countries at the in the UN General Assembly, but you think about all the other players who can make a difference, and some of them may be good, like the the Gates Foundation in the area of health. Uh, you have all these American and other multina multinational corporations, you, but you also have a group like ISIS, or you have a group like Al Qaeda, or you have some hacker op operating out of uh, somewhere, and you, you suddenly realize there's all these organizations and individuals who are super empowered thanks to the dissemination of, of modern technology. And that, again, is, uh, it's, it's overloading our circuits. We're, we're actually, not only are we not catching up, I actually think in some ways we're falling farther behind our ability to structure and manage these challenges. And talk about it from the point of view of the disarray that, that is part of the title of your book and, and, and the degree to which this disarray can get worse, that it can fall into to anarchy, that the center can continue to, to not hold. 
I could see that happening. Uh, domestically, our own politics could get more and more polarized and dysfunctional, and it will just get more and more difficult for us to be to pass the kinds of legislation we need to deal with things like infrastructure or our looming national uh, debt or problems in our educational system. So there's that inside our borders. And then, you know, in the world, I can imagine a real revival. We're already seeing signs of it, of great power uh, rivalry or, or worse. The Middle East, uh, as bad as it is, one can imagine wars, say, between Iran and Saudi Arabia or, or Iran and Israel. The North Korea situation could lead to war between the U.S. and and, and North Korea, there's problems in the South China Sea, there's problems in Venezuela, and there's problems with Russia and Europe. So I don't think you need the world's greatest imagination to basically come up with a pessimistic scenario that, that's all too realistic. Is this new scenario, this, this sort of global order 2.0 as, as you talk about it, is it going to require a greater level of cooperation among nations, particularly some of the larger powers, and how do we begin to think about going about putting that together? Well, by definition, it'll take uh, to, to get a world in which the major powers and players coordinate and cooperate to deal with the various uh, manifestations of, of globalization. Say to what to set the rules for cyberspace, just to give you one area. It'll take an awful lot of collaboration, not just among countries, but also technology firms and uh, and others. And I and I think this has to become, in some ways, the the centerpiece of American foreign policy. The problem is, it's going to be tough. You've got fast changing technologies. You've got very different interests, say between a, a Russia. Uh, which may want to subvert our politics or Russia or some other country that also wants to control the flow of information to their own citizens. The United States has very different views in terms of uh, openness and uh, the flow of information. So I think this is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Is there something to the idea, and, and I guess somebody else originally said this, but, but former Defense Secretary Rumsfeld used to talk about this idea all the time, that when you have an intractable problem, that sometimes the solution to it is to find a larger problem. Talk a little about that. Richard Nixon used to talk about that also, that sometimes when you're negotiating and you couldn't come up with a, a deal by adding things to the mix, you created new trade-offs. We may, for example, see that in our own politics very shortly when it comes to this question of a wall. The president obviously wants a wall. Democrats, they want to see, you know, DACA uh, extended. They may want to see other changes. So it may be that the only way to get an agreement is to add uh, something to the mix. We may see something in foreign policy between the United States and China dealing with North Korea, dealing with uh, economic issues, dealing with the South China Sea, that we might need, uh, in some ways you have to, how would I put it, complexify a situation in order to simplify it. It sounds contradictory, but uh, on some occasions it might be the only way to, to set up a compromise. With respect to North Korea, it seems possible almost extant the United States, that other nations may come together to solve the problem and, and leave the U.S. out. Yeah, the problem is then they probably won't solve it. From our point of view, I think the danger of these, or something that leaves me uneasy about these talks starting about tomorrow, Tuesday, right. between North and South Korea, is that we're not sitting at the table. And South Korea's agenda is not the same as our agenda. They may be worried most about, say, stability on the peninsula. They're worried most about avoiding a war since so many South Koreans would, would lose their lives. I understand that. 
But we're, we also have great concern about a North Korea that could put a nuclear warhead on a missile that could reach you know, any American city. And so the fact that we're not at the table seems to me leaves us vulnerable to the the dynamics that the two Koreas may create be, be, between themselves. The other aspect, and you talk about this as well, is particularly with respect to Putin and Russia, that they benefit, or he thinks that he benefits, from greater destabilization, from from adding fuel to the fire that we've been talking about. Uh, I think that's probably true. I think the Russians, you know, got up in the morning and they they looked at the post Cold War world, and as Putin said, he thought you know, the end of the Cold War and then even more the dissolution of the old Soviet Union was the great, the greatest tragedy of the era of the of the the end of the 20th century and ever since he's been looking for ways to to change things so whether it's you know, using force the way he did in in ukraine intimidating some of his neighbors he's now shown himself to be uh, a major power again in, in the in the middle east he's clearly interfered in, in our elections and the elections of other democratic countries so he's he's not interested in shoring up the existing water he's interested in tearing it down and putting something else uh, in its its place. So I actually see Russia has emerged much more than China, actually, as a, as a threat to to American interests. Finally, is there any reason to be optimistic in the short run about the impacts of all that we've been talking about and and the consequences from it? Yeah, it's not unalloyed gloom. First of all, the fact that very little is inevitable in history makes me an optimist. People and ideas can always change things for the better. Uh, I don't think the U.S.-China relationship is doomed to, to fail. This will be the most important relationship of the 21st uh, century. India is, you know, this will soon be the most populous country in the world. It's growing at 7%. I think that's exciting. We've recently made some progress against terrorist uh, organizations. This country still has tremendous advantages. It's creative economically and intellectually. So I, I, I don't sit here in my office in New York and basically you know, feel overwhelmed by gloom. I just don't think that things work out by themselves. So the reason people like me write books like this is to put ideas into the mix, and hopefully uh, some people will read it and support policies which are consistent with what I am uh, advocating. Dr. Richard Haas, his book just out in paperback is A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Richard, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.